welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another in a series of Sundance episodes. Uh, we're sort of winding up, basically, but because of the luxury or curse of being able to see things right to the end of the festival, there's always something more to catch up on. So for this episode, we're welcoming back uh, Amy Taubin to see what we've seen since we last spoke right at the beginning of the festival. Welcome back, Amy. How, how are you holding up with the marathon viewing? Thank you, Nick. I am happy to be here talking to one person who I know and who I can imagine what you look like sitting at your computer. Um, <laughs> I was really amused at how a lot of people got dressed up for their Q&As and their post-screening uh, Zoomathons in formal dress like they would have been in Sundance, but I am sitting here in my nightshirt and black tights. Uh, and I haven't combed my hair since last night. Um, so I love podcasts. <laughs> yeah, they're very convenient. Um, yeah, basically sweatpant brigade here. I think one movie that we, we were thinking of starting with, there was a documentary you wanted to talk about first. Lucy Walker's Bring Your Own Brigade. Yeah. It's a big documentary and it is really, really good uh, and really courageous. Lucy Walker is British and she's been living in California, I think, for 10 years. And she explains at the beginning of this documentary that she's always been interested in the fires in California and that uh, she had been following and studying, you know, the fires and what was the cause of them and why they were increasing in number and in size. And so when the big fires began, the Paradise Fire and the fire in Malibu, she was going out with the fire brigade. And so the documentary begins with action in the middle of the fire. And it is terrifying. And she did take her life in her hands because the firefighters were being trapped by fire, just like the people were. There were close to 50 people who died in the Paradise Fire. And she, she wasn't at all censoring the horror of it because immediately she shows you someone trying to minister to bear cubs who have been burnt and trying to catch them and help them with medication. And then 15 minutes later, there are people calling into the people who are driving in the fire trucks that are on their mobiles, and they're saying, I'm burning up alive. And you hear people die. And it is horrific. You have a real sense of what that was and what that was to be trapped there and to be trapped on that road and not be able to move or one woman who had to leave her mother behind because her mother wouldn't get out and she knew that she had to go and probably will never forgive herself. I mean, there, there was real, real horror. And then she spends a lot of time in the aftermath and in with people who are trying to rebuild a community and particularly one person who lets 20 people live in his house and his house survived, you know, totally by chance that the fire just turned 
at the last second and did not take his house. And then after that, the film gets much more analytic and she begins to investigate causes. And of course, environmental change is very big, but not only climate change, what gets to be very important that I think we seldom hear about. We hear kind of about the electrical part of this and how Pacific Gas and Electric, how their lines, which are still above ground, when poles go down, they can spark and set off fires. But this was about logging. And I did not know anything about this. Like there is this one huge timber company and they own 1.6% of California of the land in California, that's a huge amount. And the guy who owns this company is among the like 250th richest persons in the world. And it is their particular method of clear cutting that had a great deal to do with the Paradise Fire. So that was really interesting. And the other part of that is how people react afterwards. And this is kind of relevant to what we're going through now all over the United States to the attempt to make laws about how people can rebuild, you know, that legally you have to surround your house with five feet of non-flammable land where you don't grow plants and you don't. And in paradise, All these people refused to have new laws that had anything to do with the way they'd rebuild. That didn't mean in the end that they weren't sensible in the way they rebuild, but they didn't want it to be constrained by law. So this documentary has many, many, many aspects. I mean, it's not just the horrible fire and, you know, a kind of awful action disaster movie, but it is also analytic. And it also gets very close to a bunch of what in documentaries are called characters. I always think that's so weird to call real life human being characters, Mm -hmm. but it gets uh, very close to a bunch of people. And it also does the difference between Malibu and how Malibu reacted to the fire and what happened there. And paradise because there's this huge class difference yeah i was only able to watch a little bit about a little of this but i did just want to say that it is like a disaster movie that is you're you're inside i mean the the first 30 minutes of that movie is just harrowing because there's no let up she moves from what must be mostly cell phone footage from from within like the burning zones you know within a car trying to leave And as he said, there are these 911 calls uh, where they're basically just telling the person, they tell one person after, we can't, there's no one who's going to come to help you, you know, (laughs) you're on your own. And at first, you know, I had the immediate defensive response, which is like, this is too much. You can't, you can't have these, this audio, you can't show this. And then I thought, you know, usually movies about the effects of climate change, they actually feel pretty abstract and removed. And this this is what it would be like. Uh, this is that is the sort of world you would be you would be living in. That's the sort of world people are living in now. So I actually came kind of grudgingly to appreciate that kind of being thrown in the deep end, being thrown into the the flames there to 
you know, actually be like almost shaken awake uh, with something that visceral uh, in terms of those effects. I, I thought that was remarkable. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting about Sundance is that you do walk into these movies and you have no idea what they're going to be. And I would imagine that when this movie gets out into the world, that people will know in advance and maybe a lot of them won't want to come and see it, you know, because when I write about it, I'm going to say that this is really harrowing that I have never seen or heard a person die in a documentary on cell phone audio. What, you know, what is that to experience? And a lot of people, I think, simply will not go to this movie. But I think it's fabulous. I think it's terrific. And she's a really interesting filmmaker. Yeah, she did uh, Wasteland as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she did a ski movie. I think it's called The Crash Reel. Yes. And uh, and this one is uh, Bring Your Own Brigade. And actually, does this connect in any way with users, I wonder? Well, Users is a movie about the future of the digital world, of nature being subordinated to the digital world. It's not a disaster movie in that sense, although it has really stunning visuals of the natural world, which, you know, it's a kind of dialectic between this is a giant tidal wave Mm. and this is the entire world being captured in a web of cables and invisible cables and satellite information gathering. And what she does and uses is so interesting because it's made over four years. And she is the mother of two small children. And so she began it. The youngest was just born. And the older one was two. And so it takes place over four years. And in part, it's about what her children will experience and what will they remember of what we think of as the sensory experience of the natural world, including the experience, the sensory experience of being at your mother's breast and being rocked by your mother, as opposed by being rocked by a perfect digitally controlled cradle, which finds exactly the meter at which you rock the baby and how long and the sound that the baby goes to sleep with. And that is perfect, but there's absolutely no sense of what's missing is touch. What's Mm. missing is any kind of connection to the natural world by touch and then later by sight. And so she has the mother-child dyad in the middle of this as the microcosm. And then she has the macrocosm of this whole digital transformed universe. It's really, really interesting film. Yeah. And and also, I mean, for me, it had this strain of dread uh, underneath it as well. I mean, not, not at all in the same way as the sheer terror of Bring Your Own Brigade, but you're so right to zero in on the on the on the sense of touch uh just the feeling of of that somehow just diffusing and dispersing and and 
not in the sense of, oh, I'm worried there's this new generation of kids who are going to grow up, you know, dissociating and all of that, but just it, doing it in a way that's chronicling uh, the, the change in, in ways people are experiencing the world and will experience the world in a way that's that felt kind of empathetic, yeah, in a deeply sensory ways. And using these kind of sublime, these sublime images as well of the natural world and then putting them alongside otherworldly images uh, relating to, you know, technological phenomenon and connections and... Oh, there's that one moment of laying the underwater cable. I mean, I had no idea that enough cable to wrap around the world, the planet, four times is laid under the ocean, and that's how we transfer digital information around the world. It was incredible. I had no idea about that. Yeah, I didn't realize how fragile seeming or how, I don't know, precarious that that can seem. Yeah. And how disconnected that seems from the virtual nature of, of the internet, which, you know, we don't think is tethered down in any way, but it, it really, there still have to be cords that, that connect in, in that way. And then I guess there's a bit of an echo with like an umbilical cord, maybe a little bit there, but, mm-hmm. um, and then the ending is, I guess, her son walking away oh, from right. her. And walking to the edge of the beach. Yeah. Cliff overlooking the ocean. Which is you know, could have been the ending for a, a, a drama of some, you know, of, a, of, a, of some sort. Um, and I, that just feeling of, you know, separation and independence, I, I thought that was a, a kind of a remarkable kind of grace note or lyrical note to end, end on there. Interesting way to end a movie that's called Users. I also like drawing attention to the word users, which has always struck me as just a kind of awful word. <laughs> That we're we're all users, it, you know that that's our default term when they talk about people who use software. We're users. <laughs> right. And one of my cats, my black female cat, who's about eight years old. My three cats, none of them have any interest in what happens on my screens. Although at various times of the day, they all sit on my desk, but they're not interested in the screen. They're interested in me. And at some point, she got a look at, because I'm looking at these, I have a very large screen for my desktop. And she turned around, and it was in users. There's a scene in which there's like a storm of of wrecked electronics pouring down into these containers that people sitting on an assembly line are sorting through to try to find, I guess, what are viable parts and what's just a bunch of things that are clearly take their fingers off. And my cat began, saw the this storm of pieces coming down, and she was absolutely fascinated. And that was like 30 minutes into the movie, and she never took her eyes off the screen till the end. <laughs> so I don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was... I was joking that maybe she was enjoying seeing the all the electronics that you know we all spend too much time looking at instead of her <laughs> being destroyed. That's also a benefit of watching at home. You, you get an audience reaction you wouldn't have gotten if you were at a at a theater. <laughs> Definitely, you know. And most people come to Sundance without their partners because it, it's work, it's business. But now most of my friends are sitting home with their partners watching Sundance movies. And so they'll say things like, well, Midge went to sleep, but <laughs> 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 I kept watching. 
Well, I mean, that's how people normally go to the movies in real life, not at festivals, but it's a difference. Maybe we should talk at this point a little bit about how I think Sundance has done a really good job. I mean, I think this feels more like a festival and what Sundance would be like if you were there than say what the New York Film Festival did or TIFF did, which was pretty much let you access the movies. And then there would be talks and, you know, Q&As at some point. But there are all these Sundancey, and usually I get so irritated because Sundance is so Sundancey and friendly and positive and, you know, I'm nasty punk. And, uh, but it was wonderful. You remembered that Sundance is a community and that it tried to recreate that sense of community for the filmmakers and for the people I've been going to Sundance for 30 years, you know, and I'm a kind of outsider family member. But it is part of my life. And there were things they did that touched on that. And I thought it was really very, very strong that they did that. Yeah, I guess there are things one can point to, but there's also just something intangible about it as well. Um, it somehow came together finally. And and that's without the benefit of screenings or premieres that have a way of centering people's attention, uh, you know, uh, and, and the way a festival kind of concentrates attention and then people disperse and then concentrates attention. And that's also why people come to coming together. This is my kind of clumsy way of, of getting into it. Another movie we, we, we could talk about, which is has its premiere here and was a late addition uh, to the festival. And that is Judas and the Black Messiah. HBO Max, February 12th. It is the story of Fred Hampton, who was murdered by the FBI, Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers. And uh, he was murdered. And that case was finally, after many years, decided. And although they had asked for $41 million from various law enforcement agencies who all came together to commit this murder of not only Fred Hampton, but one other Panther who was there in the house with him, and before that, many other Chicago Panthers. Anyway, it's based on that story and the story of how COINTELPRO, which was the FBI unit that recruited informants to infiltrate the Panthers and other radical Black organizations in the 60s and 70s, and the Black Messiah is Fred Hampton, and the Judas character is the infiltrator. And that's a really interesting story. And these are two great performances. I mean, these two actors, Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya, Daniel Kaluuya plays Fred Hampton and Lakeith plays Judas. And the reason Fred Hampton was called the Black Messiah was that Hoover was obsessed with the notion of black messiahs coming and they would take over the country and that, you know, Martin Luther King was the black messiah, but it didn't die with him. It continued into the murder of other black leaders. So anyway, the movie, it's a strange movie. It, it puts this story in the context of uh, a genre movie, a dark action movie. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. And when it works, it works because of the performances that just are amazing. And these characters have amazing complexity in the movie. 
I think the movie has a problem uh, for me in that it's very hard now, 50 years after the fact, to understand that it was the Black Panther Party for self-defense and that they carried guns openly to defend themselves against the police. This was not about aggression. This was about defense. And after the Panthers became notorious and there were these shootouts with the police who came to kill them, and so they killed people, the gun laws changed. And you had these laws that were against open carry. You know, particularly in California, the gun laws changed radically, and that was really about the Panthers. And then they changed again. And when they changed back, black people don't carry guns these days openly because it's too dangerous for them to do it. When you look back and you see the Panthers and they're armed and they're marching and they're singing off the pig, I think that needs to be explained in the movie, and it isn't. And so I don't know how contemporary audiences are going to take this movie, if they're going to understand anything that's going on. And of course, everyone tries in the movie to emphasize the Panthers' love for their community and the children's breakfast program and the medical program. And all that was and is true because there are still small enclaves. Fred Hampton's son was at Sundance and talked about this movie, was an advisor on the movie. Um, But I don't know that people are going to understand really what that moment was like. And that kind of worries me. But the performances are great. And it's not just the two guys. It's this amazing actor, Dominique Fishback, who is an unknown actor uh, who plays Deborah Johnson, who was... Fred Hampton's serious girlfriend, and she is the mother of Fred Hampton Jr. And she is the greatest performance in this film. Uh, truly, truly amazing. She, yeah, she is pretty uh, remarkable, and her character is a a poet. It just also adds like a different energy to the movie, which comes through her her performance as well. Yeah, and the director. I can't say I really knew a lot about the director, Shaka King. I mean, he was very, very good in the press conference. He was really committed to this project, and he did a tremendous amount of research, and he did tremendous work with the actors. Something in the press conference that was impressive was Daniel Kaluuya and how he talked about his prep for this character, because he's British, and he had to work with the dialect coach, Fred Hampton was a great orator, and he had to find one voice and cadence for the orations and how Fred Hampton would get a crowd to respond. I mean, it's almost like a call and response thing. And then how he would talk in everyday life. Uh, But Lakeith is just as remarkable in a totally unsympathetic part because, you know, he's a snitch. So Lakeith Stanfield has a much more difficult task because this character is not sympathetic. This character is a guy who's a car thief. The FBI catches him at some point and they say, you've got a choice between going to jail for a long term 
or becoming a snitch. And the kind of snitch they wanted him to become was to infiltrate the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. And the way Lakeith plays this, he does not do this happily, but he's a guy who's much more interested in his own self-preservation in the end than in anything else. And he really, he betrays Fred Hampton and he gives the FBI the layout of the house so that they can come in and murder the people who are there. And Lakeith and Shaka King were talking about the character and how in the aftermath of the Fred Hampton killing, he did not stop doing this. He continued to be an informer, and an informer against the Panthers for a number of years. And in, I think, around 1990, there's an interview that he did for the television PBS show Eyes on the Prize 2, in which he talks about what he did. And he does not say, I regret this, or it's terrible to betray people who are on the side of good. He seems very confused in this interview. I mean, he seems almost to think that he is a panther. Uh, And he's also someone who betrays the panthers to the FBI, and he doesn't know which person he is. And so this interview is actually in Eyes on the Prize, too. And I remember seeing it and thinking that this person was so insane. I mean, he had been either was insane from the beginning or driven insane. And indeed, he committed suicide right after Eyes on the Prize 2 aired on television. So that's the character that Lakeith plays. And he plays it so that you are aware of this kind of twisted guy who can't commit to anything except this kind of self-preservation. I mean, I guess he knew if he stopped, he would be dead. You know, they would never let him live after that. Yeah. It's, I think one of the most interesting things he's, he's done so far, he always, it's always like a, a furtive kind of presence, you know, there's this kind of, he's this walking guilty conscience, but is resents being aware of that, you know, and this kind of permanently uncomfortable state of being, this would be like textbook kind of tragic character, basically. I mean, that story about eyes on the prize and, and committing suicide, I just, yeah, it makes you wonder about what he'd been thinking about all, all these years and, and I mean, it's very easy to think that seeing himself or imagining himself in this kind of pantheon of civil rights figures, that that's the moment where something finally was bent too far in him and and, and to snap. I don't know. I mean, it's useless to kind of speculate about that, but that's just a kind of an unbelievable, you couldn't write that, (laughs) that that happened. One other thing I had read, I mean, I usually don't. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to to repeat these kind of things, but I had read that the roles were originally potentially reversed. Oh, wow. That would have been impossible. <laughs> that wouldn't have made sense at all. I don't know. It's just an interesting kind of thought experiment to think about that. You, you, think, that, you think that wouldn't have been... Oh, no. I mean, these are two actors that have big ranges. I mean, big emotional ranges, big vocal ranges. So maybe it could have happened, but right now they have convinced me so much that they are those characters that they are actually playing on screen that I can't imagine it being changed around. Just one one other thing I wanted to mention um, about the movie is that it's shot in I guess two three five or it's just it's just a, a, some very wide screen, um, which yeah. is quite 
it's quite a lot of impact when with these crowd scenes. I mean, there's one particular sequence in the headquarters for a sort of neighborhood group or gang that Fred Hampton is politically trying to ally himself with. Right. It's almost like a kind of cathedral-like space that's, you know, very effectively shot. There's a fair amount of tension in in the frame, these kind of wide shots, especially with this, the street and as things unfold. And, and I kind of like the way Lakeith Stanfield's body, in a way, is kind of uh, weaving his way from the background to the front in a lot of these frames, or it just fits with, again, this kind of feeling of unease that I kept feeling radiating <laughs> off of him that somehow played it well against these large frames in some interesting way. Like he's hiding in plain sight, but ultimately can't can't hide. I don't know. I'm looking at it on this tiny screen. This was a movie that really needed to be seen on a big screen, sitting in a theater with an audience. And I think that my reaction to it might have been totally different. I might have thought this was really a great movie. Yes, I'm so glad you said that because I was just in my head groping here for what it was. And that's exactly what I thought, too, uh, was that I saw it and I just felt what I was missing because some part of it is not seeing it on a big canvas. Clearly, when they, they shot it and made it, they must have been hoping or expecting would, would be the case because it's, you know, part of the movie is about giving this a monumental treatment and giving it a scale. But actually, both figures a scale, which would have been, you know, also in, in really interesting. Because um, I, as as I was going throughout it, I, I just had this vision of like these two figures kind of circling e- each other. There's a kind of kineticism that you know is in the movie, but you don't really feel on the small screen. Yep, that it's going to really connect to your kinetic center. It's different than Users is a film that I want to see on a big screen. But that's because it's so stunning to look at. Epic shots of tidal waves and underwater cables and all of that. That's what I want to see on a big screen. But this is different. This is a a film that its kinetic energy, you know, should grab you and pull you around. And on a small screen, that just can't happen. You can have a logical connection to it. But you can't have real physical connection to it. I mean, I, I do also have a sneaking suspicion. At some level, it's a movie that has a disappointment built into it. It's almost a movie that it doesn't want to give you the satisfaction of the huge tragedy of it all because it's getting you so deep into the uncomfortable side of it, which is this a snitch character. So I wonder if there's also an element of that in there. It's a bummer movie. Yeah, it's a bummer movie. And the tragedy of Fred Hampton is he was 22 when he was killed. I mean, he wasn't Malcolm. You know, Malcolm is a tragic character because he accomplished so much. But Fred Hampton was a kid when he was killed. And so it's the loss of a kid with so much potential. But that's what's, you know, a bummer and the feeling that it's the loss of an accomplishment that should have been not that was. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that that might be the best final word on, on, on or for now, uh, until we hopefully get to see it on a big screen sometime in the future. I, I wonder, does it make a sense to uh, say a little about uh, Summer of Soul at this point, if you want? Or Yeah. I mean, actually, Summer of Soul was a movie where I did have a certain amount of kinetic sense, you know, just sitting there because the music is so incredible and the scene is so incredible. So Summer of Soul is a documentary made 
of these hours and hours, I think hundreds of hours, of a three-day music and culture festival that took place in Harlem in 1969. And these were television people who made this documentary. And they were smart enough to shoot it on two-inch videotape, which is a very, very stable medium. Because if they had shot on film, it would have disintegrated by now in that basement. And no one was interested in giving, putting up money to edit it until about 10 years ago, people got interested. And it was a long project of raising the funds and editing it. It's an absolutely great concert movie. I mean, I think it's a better concert movie than Woodstock, in part because the acts are so incredible and so unexpected. And there's a kind of absence of hype around it. No one thinks that they're doing the greatest thing that ever happened. They just come on and perform. And the people are just out there in the audience and they are so amazed that any of this is happening. I mean, that there are thousands and thousands of Black people on a lawn, in the park for three days, sometimes in the pouring rain, watching these incredibly great performers, which range from Max Roach and Nina Simone to some of the great soul, I mean, to Stevie Wonder, at the point where Stevie Wonder could have just gone on repeating his pop hits and then turns into the Stevie Wonder that we really care about. And it goes on just amazing one act after another it's a great great music documentary and it really breaks your heart to see it and how it was almost lost i i don't even know what to say about it it is absolutely 1969 in harlem and there was there's never been a moment like it in the world so it's great the one thing they don't really entirely explain is who had the footage all this time or where where was it? They never say that. And I don't know if there were legal problems, if they didn't have releases from people. But basically, they couldn't find investors because think about taking these tapes, which are in a format that doesn't really even exist anymore. So you have to go into television studios and ask them if they have this ancient equipment. So you could even begin transferring this stuff to digital. And it's amazing that the soundtracks held up and never would have held up if they had the problem, for example, that they had with the Aretha Franklin documentary where nothing synced. That wasn't the thing here because they shot it on two-inch tape, so it was synced to begin with. And it's terrible. It's criminal of me not to have in front of me the people who were originally responsible. One of them was a black television pioneer and the other one was a very famous DJ. And they were the original two people who set up this absolutely unheard of thing. And they couldn't even get cops to do security. So the New York chapter of the Black Panther Party did the security for this concert. And you see them standing there and in trees and doing the security for this concert. It's just an amazing moment. Tony Lawrence, I think, is one of the people you're mentioning, right? Tony Lawrence is the promoter 
uh, concert promoter. He's the, he's also the MC for a lot of it, and really funny MC, I have to say. <laughs> like, yes, yes. The other thing about it that's so interesting, or this is just personal. I thought, well, what was I doing? Because by two months later, I was working for the Defense Committee for the Black Panther Party. So why didn't I know about this concert? Well, I didn't know about it, but I did because I was in Shakespeare in the Park. I was in Measure for Measure at Shakespeare in the Park. And Al Freeman Jr. was in Measure for Measure, and he told me about this event. But I didn't go, maybe because we were performing, and so we couldn't go. But I did also come home and watch the moon landing. And the moon landing was the same weekend as this concert. And I went home, and at that point I was married to Richard Foreman, and Michael Snow, who didn't have a TV, came up to watch the moon landing because he wanted to see it. And I came home from Measure to Measure, and I said, do you know there's a concert in the park? And they just looked at me, and I let them watch their moon landing and went and made myself some dinner. And I remember this really vividly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So it was a lot of things going on, and I think a lot of white people were home watching the moon landing. I have to say, as, as far as excuses go, yours might be one of the better ones. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this is, it's almost cartoonish, just density of event at this point in American history, I guess, between moon landing and a historic concert. What can I ask, you were in Measure for Measure, what, what role did you play? Well, I played the impossible role. It's a six-line role, and I had the greatest costume in the world because I come out nine months pregnant. And what's her name? Is she a Juliet? She's one of those characters. Uh, And Christopher Walken, in his first stage role that wasn't a dance role, played the guy who has knocked me up, who's this brother of Isabella who they want to kill because he's gotten me pregnant. So I have to come down and cry because they're going to kill my boyfriend. It's one of the most impossible roles in the world, but I had one of the great costumes ever made. <laughs> oh my God, that's terrific. And I was truly terrible in this role. I had no idea what to do with it. It was like, you know, someone even said, oh, Amy Talbin. Well, she tried to figure it out, but she couldn't. Oh, it's no. just one of those parts that mostly... They keep you at the side of the stage and no one notices that you exist. But I had to come down front and center and throw myself, I think, against the bars of the jail where he was being held with my nine months pregnant stomach. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> That's quite a grand entrance. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's uh, Summer of Soul. You've got a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern account of Summer and Soul. <laughs> um, so, let's see. Oh, oh, yeah, you, you have to talk about this series that you, uh, you've... Oh, you, yeah. Before I talk about the series, I just want to say one word about the Sparks Brothers movie. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I think the Sparks Brothers movie is wonderful as long as the Sparks Brothers are on the screen. You know... 
it's a great project and this is you know a strand of music culture that i was totally unaware of or just the vaguely aware of and so i'm very glad to know them and their music but the director of this documentary lined up maybe 20 famous people to say praiseworthy things about the Sparks Brothers and some not so famous people. And they say them over and over and over again. And he doesn't, because many of them are very famous, I think he didn't have the heart or the courage to cut down what they were saying, but he needs to. And it would be very funny if each of them came out and said two words, you know, like you see in ads, magnificent or whatever, and then disappeared because <laughs> it wears down the movie terribly till, you know, the last act seems to be nothing but endless repeated comments about how great they are. And I'll probably write that somewhere and maybe someone will listen. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's interesting that Mike Myers liked the Sparks, but <laughs> just he keeps kind of popping up, and everyone keeps popping up. Flea, and, and it's uh, here comes everyone. But um, um, so yeah, that's that's the Sparks Brothers documentary, and then this is really great in the episodic series section. They have a French series called "Would You Rather." This is a series which runs on regular French television. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it on any American television, either cable or Netflix or anything, and I hope someone picks this up. At the center of the series are two young women who are probably, for the sake of legality, said to be 16. They seem younger than that. Anyway, they're in high school. And they live in those suburbs of Paris in the banlieues where people of color live. And these two best friends, one of them is black and one of them is Jewish. And they have boyfriends or they have male friends who aren't clearly their boyfriends because I don't think either of them have had sex yet, except they're experimenting with each other like what you would do and all the time. And so their boyfriends-to-be or possible boyfriends, one of them is Black and one of them uh, from Africa and one of them is Arab. And it is just, I have never seen uncensored kids. It's clear that not the story and not the outline of the scenes themselves, they seem pretty set. But the dialogue and the action is very loose and improvised. And it's organized into five-minute segments with titles and music. And the music is Vivaldi. You know, the music is this absolutely wild Vivaldi concerto for orchestra that occurs between each segment. The energy is, like, fantastic, but it is the kind of just sexual openness of these girls that's extraordinary and it is the way girls are but you never see anyone allow girls to be like that on television i mean you just don't and i think they're great and i think the kids in this are all but particularly the two young women are just great actors and 
eventually you realize because it's an hour long made up of five minute segments and i don't know how they show them on tv i presume they go from segment it's kind of like a Godard film suddenly there are titles and vivaldi and then you're on to the next five minutes <laughs> and the titles and vivaldi repeat at the end of every five minutes and there is a story arc and it is that these two girls have been friends since they were five years old and at a certain point it's clear that one of them does something that the other one finds unacceptable, which allows them to realize that they see different futures for themselves. And it is like heartbreaking. Hmm. I can't say enough positive things about this series. I just, I mean, it's one of the best things I saw at Sundance. I think I know what you, what you mean that, yeah, there's just sort of hanging out and just kind of frank talk that you just don't yeah. see in a show or in a movie because when it happens in a show or a movie, it's usually then becomes a plot point. Like it can't just be like the continuum of just, you know, relating and hanging out. It has to be like, oh, someone said this or, or you know, was extreme. And then it becomes the, the impetus for some, some action or whatever. Yeah. Did you see the movie Cuties? No, I never got around to it. Some of that reminded me of what you're saying, just reminded me a little bit. And also they're, they're I mean, in that, maybe they're even younger. Um, in Cuties, are they trying to be performers? They are. So I guess they're already kind of, um, it's a bit performative. I mean, that's a whole genre now. I've seen three movies like that. One by a first film by a woman director who graduated from Columbia Graduate Film School made this movie somewhere in Trinidad, maybe. And it's exactly the same story. It's this young woman who gets a job as a music video performer. And what happens to her? And she's like 16. And she had basically no future, no money. And then she gets this job. That seems to be a genre about women who don't have a choice except to use their bodies. To make money. This isn't about making money. This is just about who you want to be. So that's called, I wonder what it is in French. I'll have to look it up. It's probably some, something with a lot of apostrophes. It's just to prefer. Oh. You prefer. Right. Well, um, anything else you wanted to uh, touch upon or? Uh... I don't think so. I mean, I'm going to go back and look at five different movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's not over. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be podcasting away on about something else soon. Thanks again, Amy, and uh, happy viewing. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. The opening music is called Montserrat by The Minarets. For a list of movies discussed in this episode, sign up at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.